It was on my last climb of the day, swinging my axe into the ice and gently kicking my crampons in, when I heard the most terrifying release. It sounded disastrous, like ten refrigerator-sized blocks coming unglued from the wall and falling to the ground. The sound that followed was worse. A man yelling and screaming at the top of his lungs. It all sounded like something out of a horror movie. I made it to the top of the climb and just stood there while a rescue was formed. Our instructor, trained as a first responder, helped the victim. Our class stood at the bridge, horrified, seeing something we'd heard about, an accident, but assuming we'd never witness one. Welcome to episode eight of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and we are continuing on with American Climber, my 2016 memoir. You can support this podcast by subscribing to the Climbing Zine or supporting us on our Patreon account, simplifying those things a little bit just by putting all the links in the show notes. So you don't have to uh, go find a bunch of random links, just go right to our show notes. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art, where every sticker tells a story. And you can get a 20% off discount by entering Dirtbag as a coupon code at the checkout. And let's get right to it. For my climbers, for my dirt bags, and for the people that want to be dirtbag climbers. The next day we woke up and it had snowed. That was how we got our weather forecast back then. We woke up and just looked outside our tents. Winter had officially arrived and it was time to go back home. On Thanksgiving day, we camped out at some public lands just outside of Las Vegas. We had no money and ate beans and cheap sausages. We shared a 40 of Old English, a malt liquor. At one point, the pot slipped off our poor little stove and the beans fell into the dirt. When we ate the beans for dinner, rocks crunched in our mouth. We might as well have been hobos, living on the road with just enough money and supplies to sustain ourselves for another day. A snowy, magical road of twists and turns led us back to Gunnison. Jared took the wheel, a Colorado boy who knew how to handle a two-wheel drive truck in the snow. The two in the back, two tent and Dane, acted like sandbags keeping us from skidding off the road to a certain disaster. Near-death experiences rarely resolve themselves. Almost everyone has one at some point in their lives. I never had that feeling of being closer to God or some light at the end of the tunnel. But a week after I rappelled off the end of my rope, we were gambling once again, driving the small, overloaded purple truck over a mountain pass. But everything felt fucking magical. So we arrived back to Gunnison. Two Tent and I were still homeless. Homeless in December in the coldest city in the country. The morning we arrived home, we went to a breakfast joint. I felt warm in the heart, like I was a nestled child in my mother and father's home. Gunnison was home. Every dirtbag should have a place they call home. Friends took us in and we crashed out on floors. We were in love with this experience, not knowing where we might stay the night, but having complete faith that someone would take pity on us. 
Places where dirtbags inhabit have these intricate systems of karma and hospitality built within the fabrics. The greatest thing about it all, we discovered it on our own. No one told us about it. Growing up, that they existed. And have found it seemed like discovering the greatest treasure of all. But my car. I'd forgotten about it. Was it the weed or the carelessness or being so in love with the dirtbag life that nothing but the moment mattered? I'd left my car at Hartman's at my campsite when I left for Yosemite. And one day, the police arrived at the restaurant I worked at, asking for me. I'd just taken a hit of weed and blown the smoke into the vents in the kitchen. And the last thing that anyone in the world wants to hear that the police are looking for you after you got stoned. Are you Luke Mehal? They asked. Uh, yeah. Why has your car been abandoned at Hartman Rocks? Well, it broke down and I need to get it fixed. Okay, you need to do that. Now another matter, why is there a bag of marijuana in your car? My heart sank to my gut. Was I really that careless to leave a bag of weed in the front seat of my car? Weed is legal now in Colorado, but back then it was far from legal. They wouldn't fine you heavily, put you on probation like they do in Utah, but you would get a ticket and owe a couple hundred bucks. And that much money was a small fortune to me then. The police confiscated my driver's license and gave me a number to call when the car had been removed. That night, it snowed a foot. Hartman's closes its gates in the winter when the snow rolls in and the land is reclaimed by snow and wildlife. I had to call a tow truck driver, as well as the Bureau of Land Management, to open the gate so that my car could be towed out. Dirtbag climbers and government authorities are constantly at odds. We, the dirtbag climbers, claim the land with rocks as our own, a civil disobedience of sorts. The government wants to limit our camping stays to two weeks, while we feel these areas are our homes and we should be able to stay as long as we want. The world is controlled by the rich, who consume and rape nature and build mansions, and all we want to do is pitch a tent, have adequate food and water, and climb rocks, the noblest culture I've been a part of to date in my life. In Yosemite, there's a long history of climbers and rangers being at odds. Yosemite is crowded, though. Everyone has to have a balance, and we have to share it. Gunnison was different, quiet, and uncrowded. You kind of have to make friends with all the types of people, from the rednecks to the cowboys to the liberals to the government official who is opening up the gate of a public land so you can tow your broken-down car to town. I met him at the gate. He was dressed how all rangers are. Tightly fitting gray clothes, a name tag, and a general appearance of organization and control. I showed up, unkept, unshowered, showing no organization or control, free as the wind blows. It was awkward, but he didn't hate me, and I didn't hate him. He was actually helping me. I was still worried about getting in trouble for the weed, but he didn't speak of it, so I didn't bring it up. The tow truck driver arrived, and we all got into the truck. We spotted the car and hooked it up to the tow truck. Coming down Kill Hill with fresh snow, packed into this massive truck with a government ranger, we gently crawled down, and I had a thought. Only in Gunny. When I arrived back to the police station to prove that I had removed my car from Hartman's, I was nervous at the prospect that I would then be charged with marijuana possession. But the secretary was nice, and she didn't say a word. I was off the hook. Only in Gunny, I thought again. In late December, Two Tent and I finally got our act together and rented a house in Gunnison. 
We needed a third roommate and found her in the form of a coworker of mine, Amber. She was sweet and motherly and quickly earned the nickname Mom. Our house was a classic college rental. The floor was crooked, so we named it the Crooked House. Compared to crashing out on friends' couches and floors, it was luxurious. My first couple of winters, I stood in amazement of the stark white beauty of the snow in the mountains. But this winter, the climbing bug had me so bad that I just wanted winter to be over so I could climb again. I fell into a sadness, a depression, but nothing that couldn't be cured with some friendship and the eventual return of spring. By this point, I had too many friends to feel alone. I lazily enrolled back in college with only a few credits. I took an upper-level English class on Bob Dylan. This was something I thought I'd love because I love Dylan's greatest songs as much as I love climbing, nature, Colorado, and women. Problem was, the professor and I didn't see eye to eye. When I had a creative idea and he shot it down, I would become deflated. It was a far cry from the joy I felt riding alone next to the campfire with no one but God to see. In the beginning, I thought becoming a writer would be entirely fed by inspiration, not hard work. I stopped going to the Dylan class and forgot to drop it. When I received my transcripts, I saw an F in Bob Dylan 301. My time living in the Crooked House was one of those periods that was formative yet unremarkable. I was lazy and wanted to do nothing but climb. Climbing is the perfect activity for a lazy, fit person. To be lazy and climb full-time is a crime of sorts. It's a gift to have that opportunity to live such a life. There are millions on this planet who work all day just to provide meager meals and housing for their families. The life of an American climber is one of true privilege, for it does not take much money, but it takes a juxtaposition of growing at middle class, so you're okay with living poorly, with the idea that somehow, someday, you'll return to the middle class lifestyle. It takes a liberal arts type of education to know that such a life is valuable, and it takes a community to make such a lifestyle alluring. Towns Van Zandt wrote it best though, living's mostly waste and time, and sometimes you just waste and waste until you see the vision that every day is worth your best effort. But to give your best effort means you found something that is your life's work. I had found it, but I just didn't have the drive yet. I was just high on living the life of a dirtbag. When I returned back to Illinois for the holidays that winter, I could only see two worlds. The places I lived and climbed, and back home. The Midwest and the cities of the United States were bleak. They were everything that was wrong with the world. Polluted, crowded, and ugly. I didn't yet see that we are all connected. The life in Gunnison is made possible by everyone else in the world. We didn't grow our own food or produce our own power. Everything was provided by the intricate systems of energy and highways. I just saw my own sadness, and it came out the most when I was in the flatlands. Had I stayed, I easily could have killed myself. I just sat around when I was back in Illinois and waited until the trip was over so I could return back to my true home. I was still a sad, young man. I also still had not found my way with women. Cherise left a mark on my heart that would be there forever. At least, that's how I saw it then. 
I was also clueless on how to properly pursue women. In short, I had no game. I was all about mixtapes and poetry. Yeah, we made mixtapes not even that long ago, kids. And I wrote poetry. I loved it, and I know in my heart that the poetry I wrote in those days was the purest writing I've ever done and ever will do. However, writing a poem to a woman in the first week that you're dating is not always appropriate. It scares them off, especially when there is a vibe of desperation in your delivery. Love is magic. Love is art. Love also learned from failure, and I had plenty of mistakes to make still. Love comes from friendships too, and my new roommate Amber taught me a lot about love. She had a sad start to her adult life because her mother died. You could tell it deeply affected her, and her life was defined by it. Amber also taught me about the greater world. She had made countless trips to volunteer in Nicaragua to build houses and help the people there. It had clearly touched her soul, and she spoke of Nicaragua with great joy. They had even constructed a small concrete house for a family in memory of her mother. I guess Amber became our mom because she realized how important her own mother was to her. We lived somewhat similar to poor people as dirtbag climbers, but it was a poorness that was actually a luxury. Almost every dirtbag climber I ever met was from the middle class. Grow up poor and you don't seek out to live poor. Grow up rich and it's the same. While I was in a tent for four months, I started to learn about other dirtbag trickery. Hitchhiking was one tool in the box. Put your thumb out and someone would always pick you up at least in Gunnison or Crested Butte. It may take an hour or two, and those two-hour waiting sessions built so much character that you were ready to throw away your character and give up your pride and go back to that normal way of living. But someone would always stop. Couch surfing was like camping, yet you relied on the kindness of a friend or stranger to provide that roof over your head. It was a delicate art form, writing a way of timing and hospitality for a place to crash. Then there was dumpster diving. Could something be more dirtbag than dumpster diving? I learned about it from my friends Scott and Mark, two younger guys who had arrived in the Gunnison climbing scene with a hunger and optimism it was impossible to ignore. I was just a couple years older, insignificant now, but in college, two years was a lot. I met Scott when he cornered me in the college library, asking me everything about camping. He truly wanted to know everything about free camping right then and there. That meant so much to me. I imparted all my knowledge in a quiet library voice. Just a couple years ago, I was that hungry kid and now I had the knowledge I could share. It felt divine like a spirit sent me this guy, hungry and thirsty for dirtbag wisdom. And somehow I was qualified because I was living the dream. Scott and Mark started dumpster diving for food, which has never been my thing. They would uncover uneaten strawberries still in the package and try to share them with me. I declined, but I was fascinated that grocery stores throw away perfectly good food because of an expiration date. It wasn't just one package, it was often 20 packages, and they would devour those berries like a bear coming out of hibernation. Right then and there, I was witnessing the dirtbag future of America. Once they uncovered 60 cans of beer in a dumpster, I started to take notice. Food that had set nests to other disgusting trash was one thing, but a can of beer? That was like finding gold. Then they would dumpster dive at the local thrift store and find layers of clothing that would keep them warm through the cold Gunnison winter. I joined them in dumpster diving at the thrift stores. Every once in a while, we would find something cool, brand name fleeces and jackets that were perfectly fine. My mind started turning, 
Look at all the valuables that America throws away. Why? Why do we have so much when others have so little? Even in our own country, there were people that found value in what others throw away. One man gathers what another man spills, as the old saying goes, America's cup had to runneth over. My treasure hunt in the dumpsters of America culminated in finding money in the dumpster. I had a vision that someday I would find a $20 bill. First, it started with a crumpled up dollar bill and a pocket of jeans. And then I found a $5 bill. A year after I had my vision, I reached into a pocket of pants that were delicately discarded, hovering at the top of a dumpster. And what do you know? I found a $20 bill. I yelled it from the mountaintops and told every dirtbag I knew with immense pride. I am not a man of math or numbers, but I started to think. If I was finding money in just a couple dumpsters in the quietest corners of America, just exactly how much money was thrown away every year? Had I been an accountant like my father is, I would have created a spreadsheet and gave that number an estimate. Instead, I decided, once and for all, that I would be a dirtbag. American climber, forever. The cause would be righteous, and my karma would be right. The biggest prize had yet to be claimed. Many moons after I found my $20 bill, my friend Lindsay, the dirtbag climber queen of Gunnison from Illinois like myself, would be digging through the same dumpster. She found a ring. A diamond ring. A fucking diamond ring. Could it be real, she wondered? A tingle went down her spine. She took it to a local jeweler and had it appraised. It was real, and it was worth $1,000. To a dirtbag, $1,000 is a lot of living. The lessons were worth more, though. In America, in our dumpsters, bound for a landfill, were prizes worth finding. Scavenger hunts to discover valuables you could use to feed yourself, to clothe yourself. A pirate's treasure, booty, as they call it, to sell and fund a climbing trip. I was a lifestyle climber, that was for sure. My abilities quickly plateaued, and I celebrated the life and freedom more than my skills to attain a high level of climbing. In the beginning, I wanted that, to reclaim something I'd found in ball sports growing up in the Midwest. That quickly faded when I fell in love with the dirtbag life. Winter was the best time to prove your love. Two Tent and I were so damn excited to climb, we headed out to the local crags at noon with hopes that temperatures would lend themselves to a couple hours of decent temps. We were almost always wrong. Taylor Canyon, a modest yet striving and striking granite canyon that forks off from Gunnison for about 20 miles to the northeast, was the stage to which our process of being molded into traditional climbers took place. To climb trad means to place your own gear. Before sport climbing was invented, it was just simply called rock climbing. I was glad I was already born into climbing after the dust had settled. Sport climbing, bouldering, and gym climbing all came into popularity during or after the 90s. I was glad I was already born into climbing after the dust had settled. Sport climbing, bouldering, and gym climbing all came into popularity during or after the 1980s. And it must have been shocking to the old school climbers, especially the hordes of people that were drawn to it. To be old school, to have climbed in the 1970s and before, all the way back to the ancestors who climbed rocks to necessity, meant that you were bold because the activity demanded it. Now in modern times, you don't have to be brave to be a climber. With trad, you still have to be brave. Hence, to be traditional means to take it back to the essence. 
So we stood at the first buttress of Taylor Canyon, the purple truck parked on the edge of a snowy parking lot. The first buttress rises just a couple hundred feet in the air, only a 30-second hike from the parking lot, just close enough that you could get yourself into trouble before even considering said trouble. Snowy, dreamy, alpine. We forged through some snow to our objective. The air crisp, our hearts eager and foolish. We arrived at the base of a dihedral and racked up. I started leading, cleaning snow from the cracks with frozen hands, jamming upward. I moved at a snail's pace as Tim settled into a cold belay. It was terrifying not being able to feel my hands and then putting my feet on snowy edges and almost falling off. The worst part was crawling onto the belay ledge with a foot of snow. The whole time I thought I was going to slip off and fall down that ledgy climb and break an ankle, or worse. Finally, I built a belay at that ledge and stood there in the snow. When Tim followed the pitch and joined my perch, we decided to rappel off. Part of being a climber is realizing what kind of climber you are, not. After throwing ourselves on the snowy rock climbs in the middle of the winter, Tutent and I realized we were not destined for alpine climbing, for climbing high into the mountains with cold temperatures. Believing that I should try it all, I also attempted to get into ice climbing. Again, like camping in the snow in the middle of the winter, ice climbing was part of my curriculum for my recreation degree. I'd been a handful of other times, and it seemed like a good thing to do to keep in shape for rock climbing. Uray just happened to be a couple hours away, the little Switzerland of America, the ice climbing mecca of Colorado. A snowy, sleepy place. Our 16-passenger van rolled in, full of college students, an instructor, and a couple of teacher's assistants. We organized and equipped ourselves with crampons, ice axes, and ready for battle with the ice. All day long, we climbed up the frozen waterfalls of Box Canyon. The actions of the day revolved around climbing and belaying one another, as well as calling out ice as inevitable chunks would come off and fall to the ground. A sport of impermanence, it's perfect for someone who might like the essence of it. I was on my last climb of the day, swinging my axe into the ice and gently kicking my crampons in when I heard the most terrifying noise. It sounded disastrous, like 10 refrigerator-sized blocks coming unglued from the wall and falling to the ground. The sound that followed was worse, a man yelling and screaming at the top of his lungs. It all sounded like something out of a horror movie. I made it to the top of the climb and just stood there while a rescue was formed. Our instructor, trained as a first responder, helped the victim. Our class stood at the bridge, horrified, seeing something we'd only heard about, an accident, but assuming we'd never witness one. A rescue truck arrived, and they hauled the injured climber out. Once our instructor was done helping, he joined the group and explained what had happened. A huge ice pillar had come undone, and the climber was standing directly underneath it. The pillar landed on his legs and snapped them in half, breaking his tibia and fibia. I would have screamed bloody murder as well. And that was the end of my ice climbing days. It's not to say rock climbing was completely safe, but I guess in the end, you have to pick your poison. Nothing rewarding is without risk. Even getting into a car is a major risk. But as I was participating in these extreme mountain activities, I had a feeling that I was perhaps choosing what I could die doing. I never wanted to die climbing, but after those two near-death experiences I had, 
I knew I was so drawn to climbing that only death or severe injury would take me away from it. And though I was lousy at math, I knew enough that if I did every sport I could possibly die doing, the odds would be stacked too high. So ice climbing, for me, went the way of skiing, kayaking, and alpine climbing. Something to save for another lifetime. Right, that is episode eight of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine, and I am Luke Mihal. Yet another episode that has another encounter with injury and death, and luckily that time it wasn't necessarily me; it was uh, another climber. Um, unlucky for that climber. Something that I was thinking about as I was reading this is, you know, I was just up in, in the Gunnison area and, uh, that area is not quite as quiet as it once was. Um, Hartman Rocks has become understandably actually, uh, a very popular place, not necessarily for climbing, but for camping and mountain biking. And it should be popular. It's a great place and, um, we should all enjoy it. And, um, take care of it. And, you know, some of the changes that have happened up there have actually been for the good. You know, back in the day, there was tons of glass and, you know, it was a, it was a party spot. So there was, you know, um, remains from guns and things like that up there. And there was once a wall called the TV wall that just had this trash TV in front of it for like five years until we cleaned it up, actually, one of our climber cleanups. And I think the mountain bikers have actually um, led the way in protecting that area and also building new trails and it's just it's a special place so I hope everyone who visits it takes care of it and it does seem to be in better shape than it used to be and then up in Taylor Canyon I was up there a couple weeks ago as well and it's almost a little disturbing how popular that place has become and just how much I think the some of the people who promote tourism in the Gunnison Valley are just hammering on the biking right now and it is a great place to bike it's almost getting past its capacity of where parking spots are and things like that. So I would just like to encourage anyone from the Gunnison Valley who is listening to maybe uh, chill out on your promotion of mountain biking. Um, but I think that whole area is just, uh, it's changed, you know, after Vail bought the ski resort uh, and just the nature of, of tourist towns. But hopefully they can maybe find some other things to promote and uh, at least make sure there's places to park before they're promoting these trails. But that's my rant on the Gunnison Valley. I still love that place, but I do uh, have concerns um, of how, how much the tourism department is is pimping certain things. But that's just the nature of, of these tourist towns. But I love that place so much, and I hope everyone who gets to visit it now really enjoys it and appreciates it. And that is episode eight. As I said in the intro, you can support us on Patreon. Or you can subscribe to The Climbing Zine or pick up a zine or a book or some merch. We got some new Dirtbag State of Mind stickers. All those links are going to be in your show notes now. Music tracks come courtesy of Ketza and Simon Panrucker. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. For the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast, I'm Luke Mihal coming at you from Durango, Colorado. We just got a little rain and life feels good. 
Word.